Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Phil Drysdale Show. It is great to have you here. We've got another great episode ahead of us. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Um, I recorded last week with Kate Stockley, who wrote the book Spirit Tech, or I should say co-wrote the book Spirit Tech. Um, and this was such a fun conversation. I've, as I said, I've been looking forward to it for a while. Um, technology is one of my first loves. Before I um, did what I do now, I, I used to be in the um, IT industry and I used to love technology and gadgets and gizmos. Um, and even today as I um, uh, pursue different spiritual endeavors, if I'm doing my yoga to meditation to um, psychedelics, the whole gamut. I, I, I'm looking to technologies that can assist me. And, and, and so I'm so intrigued by this world where technology and spirit combine. And we look at how technology can facilitate um, spiritual pursuits. Um, spiritual, of course, has this very broad uh, definition and, and you can kind of approach that word um, from a completely uh, secular and um, atheistic perspective as well. You don't have to believe in a God or something for you to have a spiritual practice or, or anything like that. Um, so I, I'm not necessarily loading that with any kind of religion or anything. Um, but yeah, so I'm really excited to talk to Kate. She's an expert in this area. She um, is uh, wicked smart, really interesting, very fun person to talk to. You're going to really enjoy this conversation. Before we start, as always, I want to let you know that the deconstructionnetwork.com is a free resource to help you connect with other people that are deconstructing their faith in your, your local area. Um, and so if you're going on this journey, it can be very lonely, very isolating, but it doesn't have to be. You can find people that are in your local area and connect with them and hopefully in turn meet up, start rebuilding um, communities, friendships, you know, people that get what you're going through and what you've been through. Um, that can be such a lifesaver as we go through this journey of deconstruction. And so do check out if you haven't already the deconstructionnetwork.com and if you have checked it out and didn't really find anyone do check it every now and again log in every couple of weeks and see if there's anyone new there it's growing all the time um, and so it's well worth checking out every now and again to see if there are any new people in your area um, that you haven't messaged um, well worth doing always and as always if you want to um, have something of an intimate safe space online to connect with others to process to share um, to journey this deconstruction out together um, you can become a patron and join our patreon discord group where we have wonderful conversations all day every day we do video calls and voice chats as well um, and you can do that at patreon.com slash phildrysdale or phildrysdale.com slash partner. And even more than that, um, you are helping me be able to do all that I'm doing and put out these podcasts, put out these resources, education, um, uh, doing research and, and educating people on what deconstruction is and, and trying to change a lot of the narrative and, and misinformation about that. Um, all the stuff I do, I do it for free. Um, chatting with people day in day out and helping them process their journeys um, and the reason I can do that is because of the patrons because of people that are supporting me on a monthly basis that that little five bucks a month that is you know barely a, a couple of coffees um, it adds up and it makes a big difference it means that I can focus full-time on on this endeavor and, and help people and help change people's lives hopefully um, and so thank you to everyone that, that does um, do that and, and I would love to see you in that online community and, and join us if you have become a patron and you haven't joined the community please jump in and, and get stuck in with the conversations we have so much fun there and it'd be great to have you in there all right 
that's enough rambling from me. As always, I, I love to ramble. Um, but let's get to me rambling with Kate about Spirit Tech. Okay, so this is Kate Stockley. How are you, Kate? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. It's uh, It's been quite a long day, um, uh, but I'm doing really well and I've been really looking forward to this. So I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Where are you? Are you on the West Coast? I'm in the UK. So, yeah. Okay. It is quite a bit of a time difference. Yeah. You. So are you on the East Coast then? Yeah. yeah. I'm in Boston. Okay. Five hours. It's not too bad. So it's, it's the end of your day then. Your day's kind of wrapping up. Yeah, more or less. Although I do like to work at nights, so I still have a couple of good hours in me yet. <laughs> okay, good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you been pretty busy with interviews then? You had quite a few booked in? Yeah, yeah. They're starting to kind of ramp up. Um, I've done a few and it's really exciting. Each time I think I get a little bit more and more comfortable, you know, just kind of talking off the cuff. Um but yeah, it's been so exciting, you know, and I'm getting text messages from people from all over showing the book, you know, finding the book in the bookstore and right. yeah, um, yeah. And, oh, it's so exciting to see it in the flesh. So yeah, it's been great. Yeah. I mean, gosh, the, the, the translation from all that work into seeing something in people's hands that you've created is it's an amazing feeling. Yeah. Wow. It's great. Unbelievable. It's kind of surreal, right? Yeah, to see it come to fruition and from just a, a collection of documents on the computer screen to this book that's out in the world and now other people are reading it. <laughs> that's so exciting. I'm really excited for you. That's, that's amazing. Um, well, we should get cracking because um, I don't want to keep you going all day if, it's, if your day's wrapped up uh, or mostly wrapped up. Um, how are you doing for time? Are you okay for usually about an hour and a half or so? Is that all right? Yeah, that works great for me. I've got as long as Perfect. you. Like, cool. Yeah. Uh, this podcast, you do whatever you want, say however you want, be whoever you want. You're you're not going to offend or upset anyone. Um, to give you an idea of the general audience, it's generally speaking, it's people that have transitioned outside of more fundamental forms of religion, either into okay. atheism, agnosticism, or reimagining maybe some of the faiths they've come from, or re-exploring new faiths and spiritualities. Um, and so it's a yeah. huge, broad range of people um, that probably the only commonality is they don't like kind of their traditional path that they were brought up in. Um, right. And so I, I think it's a perfect audience for, you know, your book, you know, so many of them questioning and exploring new ways of exploring spirituality. And generally speaking, most of them came from backgrounds where spirituality was not something that you explored in. It was quite rigid and firm and, you know. <laughs> whatever. Um, I have to confess up front, I've been really ill the last month. And um, one of the side effects has been my vision can be really distorted and blurred when I try and focus. And I haven't read your book. I'm really sorry. I've been sitting wanting to. Um, so if you're wondering, gosh, this guy doesn't know half the stuff that he should know from reading. But I usually try and read books if people if I've got people on the podcast. But if you're wondering, that's just why I, I, I was well intentioned, but it just never got to, uh, to coming about. Um, maybe well, if either I'll get better or we'll, I'll pick up the audiobook. <laughs> I prefer audiobooks anyways. I love it when someone just reads to me and tells me the story and also being an Absolutely. academic and having constantly and have my eyes focus on the computer screen, especially so much. I love audiobooks. Yeah. So. yeah. yeah well, oh, that's terrible. It's, it's weird and it's, it's, it's life and life has these ups and downs and it's good. It reminds us we're alive. So <laughs> it's all good. I, I, I'm all good. 
um yeah it's it, it, i've faced much worse hardships in my life so you know what i mean it's all perspective <laughs> but yeah, yeah i know what you mean about reading i mean I, I do a lot of research and stuff we do research into this community of people that are, are leaving um faith predominantly evangelical christianity and um, and you spend so many hours a day reading papers and academic stuff. You read lots of um, books that are, generally speaking, not your page turner, Harry Potter, you know, John Grisham. They're pretty grim, most of them, and dull and whatever. And, and I, I love data, so I actually kind of love it. But also, the last thing I want to do sometimes is just pick up a book to relax. I'm like, no, give me an audiobook, give me a podcast, give me a movie, give me anything other than a book to sit down and read. So unless I'm on holiday, I'm, I'm very rarely picking up books for fun. <laughs> yeah. completely, completely can identify with that. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. Right. Well, let's get cracking, Kate. I, I'm, I'm really excited to have you. Um, do you want to kind of give a rough overview of kind of who you are for people that are kind of tuning in to to hear a bit about you and your book? Like, who are you? What's your background? Why why did you write this book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I was raised um, in the evangelical, um, sorry, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, which is actually not sort of the same application of the word evangelical that you often right. hear. A little bit misleading for me to lead with that, but the ELCA is a mainline um, denomination of Lutheranism that's fairly progressive, right? So there was maybe in like 2009, I think, for example, um, the ELCA decided to be open and affirming to all the LGBTQIA um, community, right? And so that did create some tension within the denomination. Some mm. churches decided to leave the denomination and go to a different um, sort of synod of Lutheranism and things like that. So, but my church was one that was um, the church that I grew up in was one that chose to to stay and to just totally embrace that and lovingly just you know um, totally accepting and celebrating of LGBTQIA. Mm. So, um, so that's kind of that was kind of where I came from, you know. And I was always, I really, I have just such a deep fondness for my tradition, even though I have, you know, over the years, I'm a scholar of religion. So of course, like I've had my own kind of deconstructive process in terms of like right. really deciding which beliefs I'm going to hold on to. And um, yeah, you see uh, how the sausage is made a little bit once you kind of dive into yeah. the historicity of it, the context yeah. and the sociology. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. And learning um, just about all the world's traditions and stuff. I see so much kind of valuable um, and just really beautiful traditions from all over the world. And so I've kind of reconstructed my own sort of um, spiritual understanding that's a mm. lot from where I came from, but, but I do credit my, um, the, the environment that I was raised in, um, and the pastor that we had at our church was just always, always interested in questions and always interested mm. in kind of, um, being willing to kind of go there and challenge your ideas and challenge beliefs and just, um, really read, read the texts um, in a critical way, you know, kind of understanding where did this text come from? What was the historical context in which it arose? So actually a very scholarly perspective. I mean, it wasn't presented sure, yeah. It really had that kind of ethos to it. So, so I feel really just so lucky really to have, um, to have had that kind of um, beginnings, you know? Mm. And so 
when I went to college, it was very natural. I loved asking those questions. And so it was very natural for me to study religion because I had really enjoyed my, <laughs> um, my confirmation process, you know, which was really just a, we, for our confirmation um, classes, we wrote our mission statement as a human, okay. you know, when we wanted to be, I suppose. And, um, and so I, I, I really enjoyed that. And um, so when I got to college, I double majored in religion and psychology. And so our psychology program was pretty scientific um, in terms of like, rather than clinical, it was more kind sure. of research. It was interesting. And, and so for that reason, I sort of developed almost like two languages, two ways of writing, you know, psychology research articles are um, a different style of writing. Yep. <laughs> Let's just like <laughs> um, religion, you know, article or book. So I developed these kinds of two ways of thinking and ways of knowing, and then always just did everything I could do to kind of put them together and to mm. kind of understand um, the psychology of religion and understanding um, ways that um, religion could learn from the um, psychology literature and ways that psychology literature was kind of missing aspects of the religious um, dimension of, of mm. human experience. Um, so, and, and really, so ever since my undergrad years, I've been interested in these kinds of questions. And so that kind of, you know, snowballed and I did a master's degree and now I did my PhD and um, this, this book um, kind of emerged from an interest in both those kinds of psychology of religion type of questions, you know, also it's like history of religions, understanding mm. that, you know, religion, human religion has gone through different kinds of manifestations over this span of homo sapiens as we know them, right? And we're seeing this moment where we are having a lot of people um, really challenge their, the, the, and question maybe the, the religions in which they grew up. And um, maybe at one time, these traditions did hold a lot of kind of grounding and stability, stabilizing forces in our communities. And now it seems that people are really playing with that on a level mm. that we haven't seen before in history. We're seeing people kind of deconstruct and reconstruct their own understanding of spirituality. And a lot of that has to do with um, scientific understandings of the brain, of um, how the body works, how our bodies interact with other human bodies, you know, we're kind of almost like rediscovering some of these mm. uh, embodied notions of, of spirituality that maybe actually used to be um, more intuitive in certain types of maybe shamanic traditions and things like that, these kind of um, trauma healing practices, yeah. embodied somatic practices. So anyways, um, my co-author, Wesley, and I, and Wesley is also my um, PhD advisor. So um, so I learned a lot of my, you know, kind of ways of approaching and thinking from him, of course. Sure. But um, yeah, we were just really interested in kind of like, what is happening in this little, well, large kind of sprawling um, community of folks who are really taking seriously this brain science and applying it to create technologies that can actually be used for spiritual enhancement. So, so yeah, that was kind of a, a long and meandering answer to your question, oh, it's, but 
It's good. It's good. Uh, this is why I do long form so I can give people, they feel free to go, oh, I want to go into some depth here. I want to go into like the nitty gritty and we'll probably end up off on totally bizarre rabbit trails. Who knows where we'll go. Um, but there's the freedom to do that with a bit more time. And so <laughs> I appreciate uh, length and, and, and depth. So that's, that's what I'm all about. Uh, that sounds so fascinating to me. So something you, you said that kind of jumped out at me is, you know, when you first kind of um, did your undergrad, you've got this cross section between religion and philosophy. And, and you talked about how philosophy often overlooks some of these religious spiritual components that can be so healthy and religion often overlooks some of these kind of uh, philosophical kind of approaches. Like, what are what are some of the gaps that you see in those kind of disciplines that, you know, one can bring to the other? Um, I'm sure a lot of people listening can probably go, well, I can give you a list of all the things that religion misses from psychology, um, because that's maybe a lot of our backgrounds as we were heavily steeped in a lot of religion that maybe didn't um, value uh, psychological practice or values or um, knowledge as much. Um, but I've not heard uh, many people from the insides talk about maybe how religion and spirituality um, could bring something to uh, the philosophical uh, sorry, the, the psychological kind of discipline. Um, can you talk a bit to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. Um, like you said, I do think that um, a lot of folks are maybe familiar with sort of some of the gaps that exist with, um, you know, it, even in terms of um, how we conceptualize the healthiest ways to think about a higher being, you know, um, especially if sometimes God or a higher being is understood sort of as a parental figure. And then you've got interesting overlaps with attachment styles and things like that, that religion can learn a lot or, or the, the way that um, the way that religious institutions decide to structure and um, um, kind of um, shape their teachings can learn a lot from some of this, this psych psychology research, like I said. But yeah, so if I focus rather on the other angle, what can psychology learn from religion? That is an interesting question. Um, and it's a little bit harder to answer, of course. But, but, but like I kind of mentioned a couple minutes ago, I do think that there are, there's a real depth of wisdom that comes from different types of traditions from all over the world. And it's always always, always um, mixed up with um, with all of the other aspects of religion, right? Religion is kind of an eminently human thing, right? It has corruption. It has power dynamics. It has, I mean, you know, different forms of religion have upheld patriarchy to such a degree that um, is breathtaking for many of us, right? To kind of see this happen in the way that these huge institutions kind of um, work together to create um, really hierarchies that have been really damaging throughout the world, right? Um, but there's also this insight into um, mindfulness practices, things like that. I mean, psychology and neuroscience are kind of rediscovering the benefits of things like contemplative practices. And contemplative practices are things that we see all over the world. You know, it's not only, you know, Buddhist meditation, Zen meditation, right? It's also yeah. prayer and um, silence and um, and also the, the dynamics, the communal dynamics of things like religious rituals are so powerful, yeah. you know? And and the community building practices that religions have really cultivated. And, and some would say from an evolutionary perspective, that's why religions are so successful is because they mm. build community, right? And if you stop um, 
that's one of the things I think, you know, in, in, in people I've talked to and in my own self, like when people leave their tradition, they miss that, you know, because yeah, there's something, absolutely. Really I mean, I think especially, you know, especially considering the past year that we've had with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's like people, we, we feel how much we need community and multi-generational mm. communities, um, communities that are kind of that sing together, singing together. How often do people sing together except for <laughs> religious ritual services? That's such a, right. it does. And, and there's research on this, right? There's research that singing together in groups, especially, um, especially uh, amateur singing, it doesn't actually work that well as well if you're a professional singer because you're sort of focused on being good at it. But amateur singers get a huge boost of oxytocin in their mm. system kind of you know um so so anyways from that perspective thinking about um the therapeutic potential of different kinds of practices um that have pr traditionally been seen kind of within the religious realm you know contemplative practices communal building practices things like that i don't know i think that um in a in a way psychology is rediscovering those um and i think that that if if willing to kind of real, really recognize and um, admit that these are practices that are really ancient, um, mm. we can maybe more, you know? Yeah. Another, another example really quick is, um, and one of the things that we talk about in the book is um, uh, psychedelic medications. So yep. psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is one of the most promising and just incredible uh, forms of of trauma release and treatment um, and end of life care. It holds such potential and we're still kind of figuring that out with the research, you know, and of course yeah. these things aren't re readily available legally yet, but but those kinds of practices, you know, ayahuasca ceremonies, peyote ceremonies, these things have been happening for eons, yeah. you know, in yeah. kind of spiritual um, contexts, so. Those are some ways I think. Yeah, yeah, no, those are great, and, and I'm all about all of that. I, I love talking about any of these kind of things: contemplation, meditation, psychedelics. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just, I love this stuff. This is why I knew that we would end up having a great conversation. <laughs> um, it's, it's so intriguing to me this shift that we're seeing, and, and I guess, I mean, this is uh, partly what your book is all about, I guess. But like, you know, we're seeing an evolving of humanity in a way that you know, the, the rate that we're changing and the, the, the education available, the information at our fingertips, the, you know, the change that's happened in the last 20 years is so much greater than the hundred years before that, which is so much greater than what happened in the thousand years. You know I mean? It, it, we're just seeing these astonishing changes and developments. And a huge part of that has been a shift away from um, superstition, tradition, things like that. And we, we've got this shift away from kind of, uh, conventional thinking into kind of modernity and post-modernity and we value you know science and ration and logic and 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 understanding that shift kind of more from a maybe anthropological level kind of as a sociological level it was kind of writing on the wall for religion most people thought right they look at that shift and go well religion's going to be done maybe not everyone's going to change but by the time their grandkids are around there's going to be no one in churches there's going to be no one in mosques like this is just going to die and it's really intriguing to me that yes, organized religion in um, 
countries that are developed to a state where um, everyone has access to such education and things like that does seem to be in rapid decline. We can't speak for maybe other areas and other countries that are in the majority world that maybe don't have such access to such privileges. Um, religion seems to be doing just fine there, if not growing. Um, but it does seem in these kind of very um, universally educated places that religion in an organized sense is declining. And yet it doesn't seem to be, I, I've read dozens of studies now and, and the numbers seem to bounce between about 60 to about 85% of people that leave organized religion claim to still hold some sort of spirituality. Um, and it seems that, th that there is some sort of divide there between um, people's holds to tradition, religion, maybe even um, conventional understandings of uh, the divine, of God, you know, things like that. There seems to be maybe a departing from some of that, but there is something that's holding people to spirituality. And it does seem that our ration, our logic, our technology, if it's not hindering that, it might even be potentially bolstering it in some ways. Like you're talking about some of the cutting edge research out there is going, oh, wow. These, these psychedelics work great. Maybe we should be listening to somebody who's like ayahuasca shamans in Peru. Um, or gosh, look what meditation does. Look at the brain under an MRI when you meditate. Maybe we should listen to some Buddhists that have been up mountains for the last two and a half, three thousand years doing this. <laughs> like maybe we should look at what they have to say. Or um, It's a really interesting dynamic. Do you have thoughts on, you know, what is it that you in your kind of study, what is it that you've observed in this kind of shift, this, this, this secularization shift away from kind of a religious kind of um, framework that most of society has been built around for as long as we've had societies, mm -hmm. that's disappeared, but there does seem to be a, a, a huge interest in spirituality as a whole. Do, do you have thoughts on that? Totally. I, I love that conversation. And this is kind of what um, drives a lot of my research, even beyond this, this book, is, is this question. Because I do, I do kind of take a, a large view of human history a lot of times. I do do like studies of the, um, the evolution of religion and, so, and just kind of how humans evolved to become religious creatures. You know, this is something we mm. do. We create religions the world over. There is no human society that doesn't have religion. And so it's very right. difficult for me think that a future human society wouldn't either you know it it probably will it just might look totally unrecognizable compared to what we have now that's that's potentially the case um so yeah there was this i think in the 80s um and around then there was a huge secularization thesis that's exactly what everyone saw happening um is that the uh, what what is sometimes in the literature referred to as the axial age religions which is the the big traditional religions that we have today that they're disappearing, right? Um, and actually, the one of the main scholars who who published that work um, named Peter Berger, who is a just brilliant, brilliant mind, um, did something that very rarely scholars do. He actually published follow up articles and said, "I think I was wrong." <laughs> like that's <laughs> to the end of his career. He said, "Oh no, that's actually not what's going to happen." And he amended his um, theories to make mm. to you know, given the data and, and what he saw and the further thinking that he had done. Um, so on the one hand, we are obviously seeing a secular, a process of secularization. Does that mean that religion is disappearing? Like we once thought maybe it meant no, it means something about um, perhaps that our societies are becoming, there's, there's a, an interesting new kind of separation maybe between um, public and private. 
So whereas religion used to have a larger public presence um, and kind of, you know, um, more overarching kind of this is the way that we organize our societies, maybe there's some process of kind of individualization. Mm -hmm. Religion is kind of a private thing. It's a spiritual thing that you do and you figure out on your own and then you create communities, kind of sub-communities that exist um, under kind of the, the larger societal umbrella, which is why we can so successfully, you know, which is debatable, um, live in with, with pluralism in diverse societies, mm. right? We don't, always, we don't have to all believe the same thing. Like that's that's the 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 dream, of course, right? That we can have um, that diversity with a lot of peacefulness. Um, and I think that that process of kind of this idea, at least, <laughs> at least in the U.S., there's like this idea, right, that we have a separation between church and state. And right. you can argue all day about whether we actually do, you know, because there's right. plenty of where you might be one of the countries that does it worst, if anything. <laughs> That's exactly right, which is which is ironic, right? right? That that now given, I mean, given the whole intention to create a separation, the opposite happens. Mm. You know, and that and that's not an accident, I don't think. I think this is part of the way that humans think about our communities and ourselves and how we, we strive to kind of create moral codes and understand good and wrong. And I mean, you know, we don't need to get into politics, but it's a complicated system. Right. Right. So, um, yeah. So one of my real questions and kind of the things that drives a lot of my research is kind of trying to get to the root of why and how human beings and human communities um, cultivate religious and spiritual groups, behaviors, practices, beliefs. So it's not only why do we have this urge to ask about the beyond or why do we have this kind of intuition that maybe there is some sort of there's something to the spiritual side of life you know so many people have experiences that they would call spiritual and or maybe have um experiences of you know loved ones who have died and who have come to visit these kinds of things you know they have this sense that there is something beyond like, I don't, you know, maybe they would say, I don't believe in heaven and hell. And I don't believe in all that stuff. But there's something right. So but it's not only that it is that. And then there's also this other side of the way that um, the way that humans really want to engage in ritual type practices together mm. and how that feels good. You know, it feels good to be part of a group, especially part of a group that is rooted in something meaningful, you know, or rooted in some kind of a heritage of some sort that um, feels like it has some stability, not only in the past and the present, but also the future, you know, mm. that there's, there's something to hold on to. Um, and given the kind of structure of our current world with like social media and, um, and, you know, remote working and, just the way that we create community is different now yeah, than it ever absolutely. happened. I don't think we've really figured it out yet. You know what I mean? But, but I'm fascinated to see how that will affect um, how it is that we do religious and spiritual practices in the future, you know? Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, one of the chapters um, talks about the a church that exists entirely in virtual reality, you know, 
So people mm-hmm. put on their virtual headsets, go to church. And um, I think for some people, that community has been transformative. And maybe for people who have never actually stepped step foot in a brick and mortar church, you know? So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's, it, it's very, it, I don't think there's any way for anybody to know. So it's for that reason, it's kind of a fun thing to think about. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting observing over the last year, just talking with people that have been going through these processes of evolving, changing, shifting in their faith. I've talked to so many people that have said, oh, I was in this place where I wanted to leave church. I didn't really know how to even begin to do it. And church kind of shut down and it was like, ooh, clean break. But I've also talked to a lot of people that were like, you know, I just thought that maybe I didn't believe what my church believed. Maybe I need to explore some new church. And the fact that I could suddenly jump on like five Zooms in five weeks and explore five different churches and no one in my church would know right? No one knows that I'm on another church and, and visiting another church, quote unquote. And, and, and it's just really fascinating. And a lot of them going, oh, and that showed me that I just didn't want anything to do with any of it. <laughs> like I, I got a clear picture of like, nope, it doesn't matter which denomination or, yeah. you know, which pastor or how tight the genes are or whatever. Um, it, it's really intriguing to me, these, these models that are suddenly available, because I've also talked to people that have said, I, I just was so done with church, but because suddenly I could just flick on Zoom and I could blank the screen and mute my mic and just watch and participate in a safe way where I didn't feel I was going to be jumped on and tried to be converted or handed into coming along to a membership class or, you know, or, or picked at because I've got a tattoo or looked differently at because I'm black or whatever, right? Looked badly upon because I've got a boyfriend that I'm living with or, you know, the, the list is so endless for a lot of people that suddenly just disappeared. It was a safe place to engage with or people that have created these online networks on Facebook groups and pages or discord servers and things like that. It's incredible to see the way that can build community. It's, it's in no way, shape or form, anything like going to the pub with 20 people and having drinks and laughs and sharing stories and laughing with people as they laugh and crying with them when they're hurting and you know nothing is like that nothing uh to me really will will fit that gap in an online space at least it hasn't yet um but in another sense that going to a pub isn't there for me like some of these online spaces are 24 7 you know we've got i've got a patreon group that meet online and we we talk all day every day we're messaging we're checking in with each other how are you doing what's going on how did that conversation with your family go oh my gosh it must have been terrible you know like what do you guys think about this i just watched this podcast and it's triggering as hell like you know is it just me or you know suddenly that is so much more there for us than maybe something like a traditional church it's just not so cut and dry um but it, but it is really interesting to see um you know, is there a future that it feels like the future we're building of this more and more individual religious and spiritual practice, it does feel like it grates against human nature on some level. It does feel like it's um, pushing against our need to be in a group, you know, to feel part of something like longevity, like you're talking about there, like, you know, where we can go, yeah, this is where we've come from and this is who we are and this is where we're going and this is what it looks like to join. And because there's a joining process, I belong and I know you belong and I know we're together on this. Like those things, people, I talk to people every day who miss that, who long for that and don't really know how to begin to build that. 
Um, yeah. Do you have thoughts on what that's going to look like? It, it, you know, does it look like these online spaces? Is that good enough? It, will that fill the void? Do you, right. do you see a kind of modern church thing evolving? You know, these kind of maybe like, a, you know, humanists kind of have like humanist church services and things, like that, which is great. You know, atheist church services exist. Um, is that the future? <laughs> I don't know. It's so hard. And, you know, I think it's I think it's all of the above. Right. Because the ability to liberate yourself from a community that is not life giving is worth it. You know, right. it's just worth it. And to be able to find like minded people, whether it's on Discord or or Twitter or wherever, like I agree that these kinds of spaces for especially intimate conversations are 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 life saving. For a lot of people, literally, mm. you know? Yeah, quite um, literally. Yeah, absolutely. And for instance, um, the VR church uh, pastor that I interviewed for the book, DJ Soto, um, his he, he does come from an evangelical tradition and actually got a lot of flack from his own tradition for trying to do something in virtual space because everyone just said, like, no, that's not real. Like, you know, baptisms in virtual reality aren't real baptisms. Um, even if someone, for instance, is homebound and cannot go to a church to get baptized and yet has a transformative experience in this virtual space. Because once you put on the virtual reality headset, like you're there, mm. you're in, your brain really thinks you're present. <laughs> um, so, so he just kind of thought that was so bizarre. Like, why would you close down the possibility of a transformative experience for someone because you don't like virtual space? You know, you don't like right. virtual reality. Anyways, one of the things that he talked about was just how, how pleasantly surprised and shocked he was by the diversity of folks who showed up, especially early on. Um, and I haven't talked to him for a while now. Um, it was quite a while that I interviewed him, but, you know, he talked about um, agnostic and atheist people or people who had left their tradition and who had no intention of going back, but they saw this on the, on the sort of alt space VR, which is, I think is like kind of the calendar, um, for that platform. You know, they saw the right. sun on the calendar, just stepped in for a couple minutes. It's kind of like exactly what you're saying with, you know, suddenly now that you can just kind of log on with zoom, it's not as much of an investment right. as like, get I can hit log off. It's no big deal, right? No one's going to come knocking on my door. And who doesn't want to go virtual reality church? I've got to check that out, right? I mean, like on some level, we're all thinking it. I want to check that out. Well, and what it does is, you know, he talked about how folks would almost just really dive in pretty quickly to intimate conversations about struggler, struggles that they're having in their life, about um, questions about their faith, because there's this level of anonymity. Yeah. And you know, I think especially when they started now, I think the, the technology moves so fast. Um, but your avatar can really look like you. You know, you can dress up your avatar yeah. and make mine have blonde hair and put on some cute earrings and <laughs> look like me. Um, or you can make your avatar look like someone else, you know, right. or you can make it look like a robot or you can make it look like an alien. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. So great. And, and in that space, Everybody loves the weirdness, you know, everybody. And so, and yet it still facilitates this intimacy. And even if your avatar looks like an alien, you can talk about your real life. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is, it's kind of a nice, VR is, is such a fascinating space. I think there is so much to learn about virtual right. reality. Side note, there's also what they would call um, technodelics, like virtual reality, almost kind of like psychedelic type experiences. 
that you have in without any sort of drugs. Um, and so that's a whole nother angle of that conversation of what's a potential of virtual reality. But um, yeah, but anyways, if you think about kind of the science of, of the tech, um, when you put on and kind of enter that virtual space, you put on that headset, your brain is tricked. You know that you're in your mm-hmm. living room, but your brain thinks that you're with people, you yeah. know? And so similarly, like if you, there's this sort of famous VR experience where you're walking a plank, you know? I was and- literally going to mention my experience of that. that as you were thinking, <laughs> I'm like, I, it's crazy. It's the worst thing I've ever watched because my wife and I went to a VR place where they do like an hour and you just do lots of experiments. And we did that and you can watch your partner as they're doing it. And so I'm watching on a TV screen, her going up this lift, like, you know, the elevator for like dozens and dozens of floors and it opens up, right? And you've just got the plank and it's just straight out into nothing. And she is like, oh, oh, I don't like this. And I'm watching, I'm like, what an idiot, right? Like <laughs> I've just done a bunch of VR stuff as well. Like I know how immersive it is, but I'm like, that's stupid. Like it's just, it's just a plank, you're in VR. And then it was my turn. Cause you, I think you're supposed to, you walk the plank and then you're supposed to jump off, right? And you, you just fall like 80 stories or something. This is horrible. Um, and I remember in the, you're in the elevator and you can see in the crack in the elevator, you just see all these kind of like the, the, the windows passing by across the street or something. And I remember it opened the door and literally, I can remember to this day the flood of adrenaline that coursed through my body as the winds kind of howls in the headphones in your ears. And you are literally 80s. And it's kind of cartoony, right? We're not there at the technology where it looks that real. And I am literally going, I'm going to shit myself. I honestly yeah. feel sick to the core. My body is coursing with adrenaline. And, and he's like, all right, walk the plank and jump off. And I am like, Phil, you're walking on tiles. You're walking in a room that's on a grand floor in some random warehouse in Manchester. You're walking on tiles. There is no plank. None of it exists. And I'm, I'm, I, I can't even get myself to move forward. Uh, it, it, and I was, I was so in awe of how my brain failed me, right? Because I'm talking to it and I'm like, this doesn't exist. You can't do I had to look at the sky and then step off because I couldn't, with the buildings around me, I just couldn't do it. Uh, it, it was astonishing. It was one of the most profound moments I've had of my brain is a devious bastard and I can't trust it. That was basically my top, my come away point from that hour experience was, oh, this thing does not play with me. Like it's, it's not on my side always. <laughs> totally. I think that's a really important lesson for so many different applications that your brain is a devious bastard and it is not always telling you the truth about what's happening. Right. That's important. It's wired for safety, not truth. A hundred percent of the time. <laughs> um, so you did jump. Did your wife jump too? Oh, she jumped. She was fine. She was like, Oh, this is scary. And then she did. And I, the thing that I laughed the most about was when she hit the ground, she was like, Ooh, um, I couldn't, I, I, by the time we, so I was looking up at the sky and I walked off the plank and then suddenly in my periphery, I'm seeing the buildings and I had to close my eyes. I didn't even keep my eyes open. Like I, I just, I'm, I'm a scaredy cat. I can't like go on like, like, you know, Ferris wheels and like really tame rides like that you take your kids on. I can't do that. I'm like, I get vertigo watching people on these roller coasters and things like that. So I, I am a baby with stuff like that for sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, I couldn't, I just could not do it. I, 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 I was so in awe. Like, cause I've, I've said this for years. Oh, your brain isn't wired, you know, to necessarily give you the facts, the figures, the whatever. Um, but yeah, that was one of the realest experiences and, and lessons I've ever had in that. 
I guess you just don't get an opportunity in life very often to be presented with two realities that are both um, kind of true, but one is very clearly a fabrication. Like apart from like VR, when does that overly happen? Um, it's so fascinating. Sorry, I interrupted you with my random story, right? I took your story about this experience away. <laughs> Sorry. No, I love that because that is exactly like, that's the point. That's why there's such incredible, you, we can also talk about the potential dangers of something like this, of this, of this technology, because there are so many applications, mm. um, some of which are going to be really healing and contribute to human well-being and enhancement and things like that. And other applications might be things that we would want to avoid, you know, mm. um, because they could, it could be traumatizing. Like this could, you could have experiences in VR, right, that your body thinks are real. So right. um, think about like, like if the future of movies, for instance, is virtual reality movies. Yeah. Um, and then you're in those movies, suddenly they're a lot scarier. Oh, nobody wants to be in like Saw VR or something like that, right? But I actually, I know people that do, which concerns me. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, that that's scary, the thought. Yeah, no, I've, I'm not, I'm not okay. <laughs> never, never yeah. gay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so there's also, um, and when we think about kind of um, like, for instance, uh, Zoom church services are like, I don't know. <laughs> it's not the same, right? You can't really like sing right. together, these kinds of things. Um, but virtual reality, suddenly you do actually have a sense of presence with other bodies. Mm. You're body reacts to the presence of those other avatars as if you're there with them, you know, and, and I don't know, I, you know, I don't know if anybody has done the research on exactly whether or not it's the same experience as actual physical presence. Probably sure. not. It's so cutting edge, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, new, right. Um, and then uh, one of the things that DJ Soto, Pastor DJ Soto talked about that was kind of intriguing, um, even as someone, I, I don't, attend church anymore once in a while actually since the pandemic started i started i started uh logging in a couple times um to with my mom to the church that i grew up going to you know because that's okay. kind of fun to see the yeah. all the people and stuff you know um but otherwise i I'm, i don't belong to a church community even though i have other kind of spiritual ventures that i sort of entertain um but I was so taken aback and kind of um, not maybe taken aback is not the right word. I was so intrigued by the potential for what he described, what Pastor DJ Soto described um, as kind of potentially coding or developing different types of experiences, virtual reality experiences for the church services. So not only actually kind of recreating a regular service, but also having experiences where maybe you're, you're, in a Bible story, for example, or mm. the pastor cultivates an experience of real life where you're where you're sort of navigating a tough situation and have to make some decisions about kind of you know how a Christian or or whatever tradition it is how a Christian would behave in such such circumstances or like you know to develop compassion or develop kind of skills of equanimity and of love and and so just kind of imagining and, and would you try to create a a, a religious or a virtual experience of Jesus, for example. Can you imagine the right. person in charge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, this is 
This um, is exactly why the evangelicals get upset by the VR church idea, right? It's just like, oh, it's too un unpredictable. We can't, you know, box in what everything's going to look like. You're going to mess with our Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We don't like black Jesus, never mind alien Jesus. You know, like, what avatar are you going to give to this guy? <laughs> I don't know. I, and, and it would be amazing. I mean, maybe the folks who would be um, brave enough to take that on aren't, aren't really the folks that we would want to take it on. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> you know? maybe, maybe. It becomes a bit of a trolling venture. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but even like, you know, switching gears a little bit, like if you think about just the potential to kind of cultivate a contemplative space, you know, yeah. too, like I mentioned like that's something yeah. that um, I mean that people have you know what they would call and um, and I don't mean I don't use those words like what they would call spiritual I don't mean to say that to discount that I don't think it's spiritual I'm just allowing them to speak for their own experience sure. um, yeah people have spiritual experiences with these technologies you know technodelics it's it's a transformative kind of how do they work how, how do technodelics work as I I'm very into psychedelics very interested in it um I've dabbled in that quite a lot, um, but I haven't come across uh, technodelics and I, I love the technological world. And I'm like, how have I not heard of this? This is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's one, for example, called um, Microdose VR, which is supposed to stimulate uh, an experience of microdosing, right? There's another called Sound Self, which is really cool. I would definitely recommend looking into that one. So Sound Self... Um, I hope I can do justice to explaining it. Um, Robin Arnault is the creator of it. And um, I interviewed him for the book, just a brilliant, insightful um, guy. Just and, and so many of the innovators that I talk to who are interested in developing spirit tech are so genuinely interested in helping, helping folks and of, mm. of, of, generating kind of greater well-being overall you know it's a real vocational calling for a lot of these folks um right. and, and most of them actually don't have any sort of religious background but they maybe have for example a silicon valley background and they've realized that they want a little bit more like they want a little bit sure. more depth you know so um i'm not saying that that's his, his experience specifically but it's a common story so um yeah okay so sound self is sort of fueled in a sense, the visuals, um, and they're kind of just swirling, um, kind of kaleidoscopic uh, um, visuals with colors and lines and uh, very abstract, right? And it's fueled by the sound of your voice. So you're kind of doing a, a toning right. practice, panting practice, right? So you're making sounds that then are sort of like amplified and um, visually represented in the space. And of course it's all kind of right. encompassing. Um, and the idea is that you really just kind of lay back and, and let this experience flood over you. You're not really doing anything besides that. Um, but it's, it's, it's very meditative and, um, and the point is to kind of, um, potentially put you into a space where you could have something like a mystical experience. Um, sure. And mystical experiences sort of in the literature, like especially the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy literature, mystical experiences, which can be a technical term psychologically, um, are have healing potential. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of like what makes the difference between a psychedelic experience that, that um, seems to 
uh, have a healing effect and one that that just seems like a cool sort of maybe an experience where you learn something, but it doesn't right, really get absolutely. So, so yeah. And then there's another um, technodelic called Audio Trip VR. And that one, you're moving and you're kind of there, um, you're sort of painting and um, having a um, kind of digital representation of colors and shapes and stuff swirling all around you. So you're also creating the visuals through your movement mm. uh, and and it's a very much kind of a dancing ecstatic experience so so you know religions so kind fascinating of this between ecstasy and con- contemplation you know so yeah. yeah yeah i can see how that could be a profound experience though i mean you know the sounds very synesthetic, right? I mean, you're, you're creating color and light and sh- patterns and you're, you're speaking something into existence and you're just by shifting something internally, creating something slightly different creates a, a outward visual. I mean, that's a strippy, right? I mean, it's the whole thing, right? Um, but dissolving one's ego and these kind of things are, are so kind of central to that kind of process and, and just getting lost in something uh, and finding yourself in something that is beyond your body, beyond your own experience. Like um, it, it makes sense that these kind of technologies can be used or, or could be used for these uh, kind of mechanisms. It's interesting to me that you talk about, you know, I think of technology, I rarely think of, um, people who are doing everything they can to better the world <laughs> if i'm honest that might be a, a side effect a lot of the time i think a lot of technologies generally uh, are very beneficial to the world and, and do wonderful things but generally speaking i think what drives technology in my at least in my jaded view of the, the technological world is money shareholders profit retirement in you know, Barbados with a yacht or something, you know, and, and like, that's the kind of world of technology. It, it's intriguing to me um, what happens when technology um, or people behind technology evolve in their own personal consciousness, their own personal drive, ethic, ethos, um, and go, I want something more than just a profit. I want something more than my personal like day-to-day nine to five working for Facebook. If you work nine to five for Facebook, I don't know. Um, but I want to do something with technology that that betters oneself, that causes oneself to be more grounded or actually takes you away from being grounded and causes you to kind of t- take flight on some level. Like, you know, these, these things are really fascinating to me. Um, yeah, what does the future hold as more and more people hopefully keep moving in a similar direction of, of hopefully a higher enlightened uh, conscious position? I don't know if yeah. we could uh, agree that that's the direction humanity's moving in. I think it is. I'm, I'm a very optimistic yeah. person when I look at the trajectory of humanity across history, but I hope I so hope at least. So. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely, fingers crossed. I mean, I think that we're in this really strange moment where our technological advancements have outpaced our ability to to deal with them very healthily. Yeah. So um so yeah we're sort of in this place where we're gonna have to really push back against the values that have taken over that space, which you're right, is is profit, efficiency, speed, um greed, obsession. I mean, the whole point of so many social media sites is to make you more and more obsessed. Like that is what they want to do. They want to addict you. Yeah. 
Um, so that that's the value that's driving the innovation. Um, and a lot of times it is the folks who are, um, it, it, it's a certain, uh, certain type of person, um, but there are more and more, I think, that we're seeing emerge from areas like Silicon Valley who are the most kind of acutely aware. Mm. And they say, yeah, you know, they're the ones who are not allowing their because they see um, kind of how the sausage is made, like you said earlier, and they're, they, you know, realize the limitations and um, the potential damaging effects of these kinds of values, which are leading the the charge, um, right. and then also kind of the unintended consequences of the technologies themselves or the intended consequences. So who knows? But yeah, so for that reason, but I would say um, that technology, like kind of, kind of decoupling the word technology from sort of the um, connotation that we usually use and just understanding it as kind of like this, this thing, technology right. as like something that human beings, human homo sapiens have done since the beginning of time. This is what makes us human is that we create, right. I mean, we create technologies and structures and ways of living that allow us to live in any uh, environment, environments that we have no business living in, <laughs> you know, but through our technology, this is how we do this. You know, mm. this is what humans do. So it's very, um, it's very like quintessential part of what humans do. Um, and there have always been upsides and downsides to any technology that we've developed, um, consequences and unintended consequences, things like this. Um, and so there's no reason that the technology that we um, have today, you know, screens and beeps and blings and wires and, um, you know, I've got my Apple watch, it's telling me all sorts of things about how my body's working, you know, um, right. there's no reason necessarily that technology needs to be driven by these values of profit and greed and efficiency. And, um, but for some reason, an obsession, but for some reason that ha that is historically how it's manifested in our, in our culture. Right? So, um, yeah, I do think that the spirit tech innovators are pushing back hard. That's, yeah. that's, that's their mission. And it's not to say that all of them are, you know, I, I was sort of selective in who, um, and Wesley and I were sort of selective in who we decided to, to interview for the book. You know, we tried to kind of find, sure. you know, um, but they're, but a lot of the folks are just very genuinely aware of the damaging effects that technology has had so far. And they see it as not only their goal to, uh, to increase human well-being, but actually to heal the relationship that humans have yeah. with, you know, yeah. so that it can be something that can like, you know, be life-giving and actually cultivate some well-being and enhance our lives in positive ways, not just these oppressive ways, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I, and so I do have a lot of hope too, you know, some days it's easier than other days, I think, to maintain <laughs> that hope, you know, and hope that yeah. we even know that far. <laughs> with Usually like directly linked to how often I open Facebook on a day or something. <laughs> yeah. Not open yeah. Facebook for months, thankfully. But I, I was thinking about this recently because I've been going through some health issues for the last couple of months. And one of the things I've been really intentionally trying to do is take the first two to three hours of the day and not look at any technology, just spend time meditating, doing yoga, tai chi, you know, just contemplating, like really taking some time out. 
And I remember day one, I'm like, right, so I'll just leave all my tech upstairs. I'll go downstairs into my back room and kind of just sit. And we've got a big, huge window that outlooks over the garden. And I'm just like, I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to do some Tai Chi. And I'm like, oh, crap, I can't meditate. I need my phone to pull up a insight timer or a headspace or whatever, right? You know, it doesn't really matter. But I'm like, I'm, I'm like, give me a guided meditative practice. I can meditate without it. But I'm like, my meditation will go better if someone is talking me through it. So I run upstairs, get my phone and do that. And then, and I'm like, okay, great. I, I think I'll do a yoga. I think a yoga would really kind of like just get my body and things. And I'm like, Ah, crap, I'll go get my iPad so I can open it up and pull up YouTube and load a YouTube a yoga thing so I can do it along with it. And and I'm just conscious. And I'm like, you know, I think I'll read uh, that book I've been meaning to read about being self-compassionate by Paul Gilbert. I've, I've been read about half it and I've liked it, but I never did finish it. I'm like, I'll read the rest of that. And I'm like, ah, crap, it's on Kindle. So I get my Kindle. And, and by the end of the morning, I had intended to avoid technology because it was going to, you know, derail me. It was going to stress me out. It was going to increase my anxiety. It was going to negatively affect my health. And actually, I used pretty much all my technological devices. Um, but I put them all in airplane mode. As soon as I get grabbed them, airplane mode, get downstairs, and I just load up a, an offline, you know, yoga, offline meditation. And I was like, I used all those things. At the end of the morning, I felt fantastic. I felt great. I managed to put myself into my work and do have a great day. And it really struck home because I always say this, but it is really hard to to recognize that these these are amoral devices in and of themselves. Well, you could argue that, I mean, all the precious metals that are mined by slave kids and stuff like that. But apart from that, right, let's not look too closely at that because we all use them. Um, but apart from that, it's, it's, it's circuit boards. It's ones and zeros. You know, it's, it's, it's maybe the intention behind the person that's coding it is putting you know, trying to trick you into clicking as many ads as you like and, and who, who knows whatever. But this phone is not your enemy. It can be your best friend. It can be a tool. It can be a path to finding um, peace of mind, to finding security, safety, um, presence in your body, to be here now, to, you know, whatever your language, enlightenment, it, it can be a tool for that. And, you know, I, I listen to all my podcasts on my phone that you know that's a beautiful amazing thing that has expanded my life and you would need to we talked about audiobooks or heck half the books i read are on kindle when i travel i can't carry five books with me i want to take my kindle um they're an amazing opportunity for us to engage with with spiritual practice whatever our, our definition of spiritual may ebb and flow or um yeah absolutely i mean we're definitely at a place where we talk about like digital detoxes and we sort of like like are in awe of people who say, oh, I turn off my phone at 5 p.m. And it's like, what? <laughs> what, what right. How do you yoga? You know, exactly. But like, um, so we're really, we're really past the point of no return in terms of these things being a part of our lives for the most part, you know, in, in our culture, um, more or less. And so it's not a matter of like, is this good or bad? It's really just a matter of, of how are we going to manage this? How are we going to navigate mm -hmm challenge this new tech challenge and um and this new potential potentiality you know because there is so much potential there for um for for wellness right and to enhance our wellness just like you experienced in the mor morning um so it's just a matter of of being very intentional and asking the very specific questions like what is it about this device that is gonna ruin my morning it's the it's the internet. It's the alerts. Right. So, it's all the people on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe it works, you know? Um, but yeah, so, so it's, and it's interesting, you know, um, 
Mikey Siegel, who's kind of a, a thought leader in the trans tech space, in the spirit tech space, he's brilliant mind, MIT trained roboticist, you know, did the whole, the whole kind of like traditional engineer route and then pivoted towards um, creating spirit techs stuff. And so, and he himself has a couple kind of um, um, technologies that he's created and cultivated and actually is one of the people who's very interested in creating, um, using tech to create ritual spaces with groups of people, you know, mm. and using it as a form of, of, of connection, um, which we can get in that out if you want, but he sure. tends He's also a speaker and teaches at Stanford and things like that um, and talks a lot about kind of one of the important things that we're, we're going to have to think about when we think about, you know, the health, the healthfulness and the dangers and the safety and kind of like um, just these types of questions with spirit tech is this is it are those values that are driving the production? Because if your value is to create obsessed, dependent users that is what you'll get and that is how we feel right that is how we'll feel um and so i think this is one of the main critiques um not that particularly but this type of critique is of facebook right that it really mm -hmm. has created this space of division um and not to say that that was the actual uh intention of the creators i don't sure. think it was, but it was an unintended consequence that maybe wasn't thought through fully right, right. something so um so if you come at it with values that are completely different, if you come at it with values that are of enhancement, that you're actual, like, actually you have a value to not make people dependent on this and you want to avoid, do whatever you can in the coding and in the creation of yep. this device so that people are never dependent, you know, and they're never obsessed, which is hard, right? Because that's not a great business model. <laughs> no, it's not. No. <laughs> That's why, that's why the values are, have to be reflected on constantly and have to be, you know, you'd have to be reminded of constantly in terms of like the engineers and the coders who are doing this. Um, so for instance, in chapter two, uh, we tell the story of Jay Sanguinetti and um, Shinzen Young. Jay Sanguinetti is a neuroscientist who is developing brain stimulation uh, protocol for meditation enhancement. And Shinzen Young is a meditation teacher who is working, a uh, lifelong meditation teacher, has been teaching and traveling around the world, um, educated in Japan, was part of a, um, a oh, what am I thinking of? A Shingon temple in Japan and now teaches all over the world. So they're working together, you know, so mm. constantly are, are reminding themselves of their mission, which is basically to create a device that can help people learn to meditate kind of like training wheels, right? So meditation is hard, especially in our current world where we're very, very distracted and right. very overloaded all the time with our brain. It's hard, right? But, um, and so there's some ways in which even getting through kind of like the front gate is, is prohibitively difficult for some folks. Sure. Or I mean, they could do it if they had the time, but they've got screaming kids and things like that, you know? So, so the idea is to create a device that kind of helps boost them, helps train their brain to enter a state that maybe it's never been before, you know? Mm. Once the brain enters that state a few times, learns a new pathway, you know, learns a new route, learns some new neuronal connections, then you get to a point where you don't need the device anymore, mm. you know? So the point of the device is to make the device 
uh, irrelevant. <laughs> right. You know? So um, again, like not the best business model, but it is the best model for developing. And, you know, they might describe it differently at this point. So this is sort of a general sure. kind of um, goal. But yeah, so yeah, those are just kind of some of the, the types of questions that seem important when when you're thinking not only about, you know, from the developer's point of view, which of course I'm not a developer, I just kind of study them and I'm fascinated by the fact that they're even right. doing this. And then also from kind of a potential user point of view, you know, so sure. um, kind of thinking like, what place would this have in my life? You know, what yeah. would this be a healthy addition to my meditation practice or something like that, you know, because you don't, yeah. you don't want something that you're dependent on too much. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, no one wants, um, you know, the meditation app that like halfway through goes, and now an advertisement from Domino's. Do you fancy a pizza right now? Like, you know, like, yeah. I'm hungry. Yeah. I'm going to stop meditating and go over to my Domino's. You know, like, it, it's, it's, it's going to happen, right? It's, someone's going to figure out that one. But I, I was thinking about it because one of the, one of the, I forgot to put it on flight mode and one of the YouTube clips that I watched on uh, yoga, they had an ad right in the middle. And I'm like, in like tree pose, like really centered. I'm looking into the garden at my distant place and I'm balanced. And then suddenly it's like some advertisement for another yoga thing or, you know, this is like targeted, I guess. But like, I'm like, this is, and I have to like get out of repo so I can hit skip ads. Cause I don't want to watch the three minute ad. It actually is, you know, I've watched my five seconds or 30 seconds or whatever. And I'm like, that was not a good experience. Like if you're making YouTube, like guided YouTube um, ads, don't put like ads in the actual video but at the beginning and the end i'll even watch them for you if you want you know but like no i won't watch them i'll no. still hit skip <laughs> um but like it, it it's it just shows this lack of awareness it's a prime example why youtube or google are not the, at the forefront of this right because they are going to go well can we stick an ad in there somewhere right or can we steal their data and sell it to someone else you know <laughs> i don't know can we put a chip in them somehow or you know like listen to them in their room when they think they're talking in private like we want that stuff. We want the good stuff, right? We don't want to help them become enlightened and more conscious and you know, more enlightened and more conscious people. They don't make more money, right? right. And it's like all the psychedelic hippies taking all the psychedelics in the 50s and the 60s, they banned that shit quick because they all stopped spending money, right? They were like, oh, materialism and capitalism and we don't need that. And oh, whoa, that's, I mean, I, I mean, that's maybe partially conspiracy theory. I don't know, but like that, that feels like a big driving force um, behind these kind of mechanisms is like, is this going to keep making us money? And it does intrigue me as we see more and more people pushing these things. Cause, cause this is huge. I mean, it's one of the biggest growing industries, right? I mean, type in meditation app into your app store, right? It's like endless every week. I'm introduced to a new one. Um, or you open up certain ones and it's like, this has a hundred thousand meditations you can pick from. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm paralyzed. I was, I felt I had too many choices when I first got Headspace like years ago and it had like three meditations to choose from. I was like, oh my God, which one do I pick? Um, it's, it's just, it's, it's out of control in a sense. Um, and, and I am really intrigued by the ethics of it. And I'm intrigued by the ethics of the people behind it because there probably will be people on a whole spectrum here. Um, yeah, that we that we were engaging with. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really and, interesting. And even the best best folks, you know, who have who maybe start with good intentions, like they also got to pay their bills and they got to play the game mm -hmm. and they got, you know. So I, you know, it's it's not it's not like a good and evil kind of situation, although sure. it's that way. And sometimes you know, 
maybe people cross the line too far and you're like, okay, now, now you're no longer trying that hard. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that this is going to continue to be, um, a really vibrant and really important conversation, which is why I think it's so important for all different sorts of people to be a part of the conversation, including people like religion scholars who, on the one hand, like you think, what business does do these two religion scholars have to kind of evaluate this situation? But we're really putting the, these kinds of technologies into the context of something like, you know, the history of religion and spirituality and saying like, look, I think that there's there, these are questions that are kind of age old human questions about how we create communities, like how we decide collectively what our values are and, and what, you know, what we're gonna, um, you know, and even if you talk about it from a money, a monetary point of view, you know, um, thinking like, how, how are consumers going to value uh, these types of products and these types mm -hmm. of um, efforts to create these products because it isn't cheap to create anything. No, you know? absolutely. Something like a brain stimulation device. It's, it's actually not as expensive as you might think it would be, I suppose, but the the science takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. It's not a fast right. process. It's a slow process, but it is something that I think um, is worth thinking about and worth worth valuing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it'll just be really interesting to see how the next you know decade or so shakes out in terms of how how we continue to learn uh the balances for tech in our lives because yeah. you know whether we like it or not and it's probably the case that tech is going to be part of people's spiritual lives and so mm -hmm. uh, so i'd encourage people you know i mean i share i share everyone's skepticism you know this is not <laughs> not like a danger free zone. <laughs> right. There's a lot that could go wrong. So, which is why I think it's important to have conversations about it, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you, you hit the, the nail on the head when you said, you know, this isn't going away. You know, you can be the, the parent that hides your kid from the iPad for as long as possible, but at some point they're going to get a phone. They're going to be sitting on it. Like you, it's, it's surely on some level, a better practice to teach them how to engage with technology well, teach them how it can be a tool for these amazing um, ways to better yourself and to educate and to, you know, practice mindful practices or whatever it is. Um, it's, it's, it, there's got to be better ways to engage with technology rather than either being like fully a slave to it or like, you know, completely free from it. That, that just seems so, that's uh, just very dualistic in, in it's uh, extreme position, which I, I, I know our society loves this kind of extreme dualistic kind of positions. I was thinking as you're, as you're saying that I'm thinking even the way we um, go about creating content, creating services, how we go about funding those is, is changing and evolving all the time. You know, I, I look at, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at yoga practice. I've been doing more of that regularly and, and, I, you know, I'm finding a couple of people on YouTube and I'm like, these are the, these are the two kind of people I'm going to watch the most. You know what? I'm going to join their Patreon. 
give them five bucks a month and be able to access it on a website somewhere without ads. But also I value these two people. And you know what, for five bucks a month, I'd pay like, you know, whatever, five pounds a month for Headspace or for, you know, some other, you know, I do it for Netflix or, or whatever. Like, but this is, you know, a really important practice to me. I'm, I'm willing to put whatever that is, $60 a year. You know, it's like, yeah, that's worth it for me to have a great yoga practice. And, and I want that person to hopefully make more than $60 a year, right? Hopefully there's hundreds of people do that and, you know, they get to pay their bills and they get to have a mortgage and, you know, whatever, because even though, you know, uh, your old traditional grandma might look and go, wow, well, you, you know, you can't pay the bills doing yoga on the internet, you know, like, come on, Jimmy, you need to try harder. You need to get back into a corporate ladder. Like, I do think that we're, we're seeing a radical overview of uh, overhaul of what, what the future looks like for work, for creation and, and, and these kind of things. I mean, technology is massively impacting just a lot of positions of labor uh, in our, in our current society. And, and you can, again, look at that as a negative thing or a positive thing. Uh, I think right. a lot of that is going to go in different ways, but right. yeah. I think just like you were kind of saying before, it's, it's value neutral really. It, and, and it will have negative consequences. You know, there will be people for whom it does not work and it's not good. And then there will be situations where you have kind of predatory practice, predatory folks who come in and and promise that you can make millions of dollars on the internet and then it turns out you cannot right. so um or at least through through that person that method, yeah <laughs> so exactly i mean but put but to then put all sort of like online money making ventures or online creative practices um in that same kind of bucket just doesn't make sense either you know so mm. it's again just kind of this it really is a new negotiation of how we're doing these things. And it's, it's kind of uncharted territory to a certain extent, you know, I mean, mm. it's incredible the content creators who have kind of sprouted up in the past few years and who do make a living with their, yeah. with their online content and create incredible movies or whatever it is, you know, I mean, I'm so impressed with some of these right. content. Very cool. Um, yeah. And so, and even the way that kind of um, corporations are structured, I mean, fingers crossed that some of that kind of uh, shifts too with this coming tide, um, just in terms of the values and the the sort of hierarchical structures and things like that. It just seems like it's kind of gotten to a point where it's not serving our communities very well. But um, there's one example that Mikey Siegel gives sometimes um, of a, a person named... Um, Soar you for all, if I'm, yeah, soar you for all, S-O-R-Y-U, uh, for all. And he runs a monastic academy for the preservation of life on earth. And basically this, this academy is this ashram for the modern world where it's, it's a bunch of kind of creative folks. Um, you have to kind of apply to get in and you go and live in this place. Um, and it's sort of a marriage between lightning speed internet, you know, and just having all of the resources available to do the cutting edge research and technology and develop um, engineering development for this kind of stuff. And then also it's an ashram where you're required to meditate and, and do a bunch of the practices, kind of these traditional practices, right. That are meant to cultivate a sense of, um, to me meant to cultivate values, basically, that are that are then hopefully infused into the work that you're doing. So rather than, for example, sometimes we hear of like mindfulness-based practices use sort of like 
people try to harness them for like peak performance, meaning like right. more productivity, more speed. <laughs> yeah, more yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it's, it's a little ironic that these kind of ancient practices are being harnessed for these sort of, you know, uh, capitalistic goals. But so this is trying something different. This is saying, mm. no, like the, the, um, the practices, you know, of meditation, contemplation, um, and creating a space where those can really be cultivated and, and mastered and kind of um, taken on in such a way that they can then infuse the work. The idea is that the work that is produced is more life-giving, you know, and more and and healthier, basically for the for the people that it touches and affects. So, yeah. so that kind of thing seems so. Um, it seems idealistic, but it exists, you know. I, yeah. Why, yeah. Not, why not have more of that, you know, as we yeah. learn? And this is again, like as we're learning about how the human brain works, how the human brain cultivates values. You know, we can talk all day about how great mindfulness is, but if you don't actually do the mindfulness mm -hmm. practices, you don't get it, no. you know? No, you absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. It's I, I, and yeah, and if even if you do the mindfulness practices, if you don't have a good teacher, if you don't have the right you know, technologies there or, or people. Um, but a lot of us don't have a person on our block or, you know, in our house that can teach us. We, we are relying on these technologies to, to bring us into these kind of practices and, and things. And, and it is incredible to what a day to be alive. You know that, I mean, I, I even as I was looking at mindfulness practices and, and yoga practices, even more in recent months, I've been trying to figure out like, how can I stop watching uh, rich white 20 year old girls that all look identical teach me what you know kundalini yoga is i'm like i 100 percent guarantee they have never spent a second anywhere else other than like you know southern california you know like they have not gone and really studied kundalini in india or you know and, and so really just thinking of like gosh I just need to diverse. I'm looking like I'm not just typing and clicking the first one that clicks on YouTube, but I'm actually going, can I find someone from India that's going to teach me this practice and actually teach me the kind of some of the core components of it really teach me what the cure, uh, the Kriyas are and, and, and things like, you know, like and I'm suddenly aware, like, oh my gosh, whoa. If I look beyond the algorithm, the, like the world is our oyster. We are living in this golden age where information is there videos are there education is there um guidance is there you know mentoring and, and deciding some of these people are like yeah yeah they don't have big followings because they aren't the first time on the algorithm and they're like oh yeah just send me a dm if you have questions about this and i'll reply or and i'm like that's awesome like this is amazing i get to speak to a yogi about yoga yeah. you know <laughs> ask them a question i don't even know what to ask but i'm excited <laughs> you know i'll probably never even do it because i'm too terrified but I'm excited about this world. Um, it's it's an incredible time to be alive. Uh, we, we live in, in this exciting time. Something I'm intrigued, and I'd love your thoughts on this, is we live in an exciting time. I say we really loosely because I am excited about it. And many, many people I know are excited about this because um, many people that I'm closest to are wired to want change, to grow, to evolve, to self-inquire, to explore new technologies, whatever they might be, um, to educate themselves. These things that I'm mentioning are not the cornerstones of most um, religions as we know them. 
generally speaking, almost all religion is rooted in tradition. It's rooted in um, repeated practice and, 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 and yes, technologies, but technologies that have been slowly introduced within periods of hundreds of years and yes, have evolved, right? So you look at how Christianity evolves into Christian uh, uh, from Judaism, how it evolves into um, Islam and things and different practices and different technologies come into play. But those are over hundreds of years and involved thousands, if not millions of people dying at times over it. You know, but it wasn't, it wasn't an easy process. And I do wonder, how do you see those traditional religions engaging with these technologies? You know, you mentioned, you know, there's an evangelical pastor who's like, let's do VR church, but he's not particularly liked by other evangelicals now. Um, do, do you see potential for technology? Do, do you think it's, it takes something like the pandemic? Do you think it's, it needs, the church needs the church or the, you know, Islam or whatever it might be? Um, do you think these religious institutions need a crisis to push them into new technology or, or do you see it emerging and coming onto the stage? Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, absolutely. Religious traditions are so, um, they're very complex uh, sort of social structures, right? Um, in many ways, they are adaptive. Uh, my dissertation talks right. about religious complex adaptive systems. So very complex and adaptive. Like they will adapt to the what the environment, right? Slowly, like you said, but they are a system. So they're, they're, they have these interlocking pieces, right? If you think about them kind of objectively as this, like, mm. if you think of kind of like as an alien, you know, coming down and looking at humans, like, oh, look at these, these weird social structures that they have and do these things about them. Um, yes. So I, and, um, and, and some of the most conservative institutions that, that, humans have come up with, right? They conserve. Sure. That's, yeah. I don't mean conservative, like politically conservative or even- No, but to just stay the same is their goal, yeah, right? I mean, generally, if yeah, not move backwards sometimes, right? right. I mean- <laughs> To preserve this like heritage or um, understanding, to preserve knowledge that's come from our elders, you know, these kinds of things. So it's not as, you know, uh, yeah, it's, that's what, the point is, <laughs> but also there's always been um, elements in traditions that are progressive, that are like um, mystical teachings. So mm. oftentimes mystical practices are controlled by the system. Like if someone gets a little too mystical and a little too out there, then maybe the tradition comes and says, no, like you're not allowed to, to think in that way, you know, sure, or sure. go in that direction. That's a little too much, you know? So even the mystical practices are sometimes constrained by the tradition. And if someone gets a little too mystical, starts asking a little too many questions or whatever, maybe they're let go from the tradition or, right. or they start their own. Maybe that's part of the evolutionary process is that it's a kind of, um, if you think about it, like an evolutionary term, like it's a variation that becomes, that attracts kind of maybe new, new people. Like it becomes a little bit of an adaptive variation in its own right and starts a new thing, you know? Sure. So, so yeah, there's, and, and, you know, religious, um, organizations have been part of revolutionary events, um, in good ways and bad ways. And so, sure. you know, there is sort of, I think that the the urge to conserve and the the, the urge to kind of um, this impulse is um, this traditional impulse is probably sh stronger just you know in terms of 
quantity just in terms of maintaining the tradition, but there is also that kind of um, innovative impulse too. So, so, so in that sense, like sometimes I do kind of wonder, you know, there are those, you know, even though not hardly any evangelical folks were interested in jumping on board with Pastor DJ Soto, Pastor DJ Soto was there and he did do a thing. So he's coming from that tradition kind of like, so he's one of, one example of those folks that kind of push, you know, and we always Mm. have so um, in terms of most of the spirit tech modalities, at least the ones that we talk about in the book, like we're talking about brain stimulation, we're talking about neurofeedback, um, psychedelics, you know, virtual reality, these kinds of things. I don't know. It's hard to imagine um, very many traditional, um, these the religious traditions that we have right now taking on very much of that. I can kind of... I could kind of imagine it, you know, um, in terms of what it might, what it could look like. For example, neurofeedback is non-invasive. Neurofeedback is basically uh, a system that reads the brain waves that your brain is producing. And this is old science. This is a new application of of science. It's been around for not that long. Science is very um, quick, you know, but. Sure, sure. Yeah, we know that our brain produces electrical waves and that, and that those electrical waves kind of indicate different types of brain activity, you know? And so if um, the, the tech reads your brain waves and then gives your brain positive reinforcement v- via either visuals or um, auditory, so sounds, beeps and stuff, beeps that your brain finds pleasurable. Sure. You actually might think it's kind of annoying to hear this beep but your brain likes it. It's kind of like that VR thing, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. The brain hears the beeps of the dings and kind of responds to it by creating more of the rewarded brain waves. Mm. So it can look at different brain waves in different areas of the brain, depending on what you're kind of trying to do. This has been a pretty effective form of treatment for ADHD, which is really interesting. Um, I'm not endorsing that. I'm not a doctor in that way. (laughs) There has been some research, (laughs) So, um, so the idea is that this kind of positive, or of um, yeah, positive reinforcement of certain types of brain waves can help lead your brain into a meditative state. Mm. Right. So it's non-invasive. It's not a big deal. It's not like it's like changing anything. But you can imagine, say, just imagine <laughs> that you're in a, a church and they say, okay, so we're going to kind of move on to the part of the service that's more contemplative. You know, maybe it's right before the Eucharist, before they take communion or something. And so it's sort of this moment in the service where you're preparing your heart and mind to receive the spirit or to be more kind of, oh, my dog is going to start. Barking. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I might have to let him out here. Um uh, so yeah, so maybe this headset, maybe everyone takes out their headsets that's like right behind, right beside the hymnal or something. They put them on for a few minutes and maybe kind of like get their brains, um, settled into this space, you know? Sure. Yeah. Oh, no. You know, is that something that churches would go for? Maybe, you know, maybe it's one of those. So situations. hard to say. <laughs> I remember like back in the day, I mean, at least for like. Uh, in some of the churches that I was aware of, like they, some churches might have folks who are interested in kind of contemporary music, you know, and then there are mm-hmm. other people who are not interested. Yeah. yeah. So oh, my have- dead body will have drums in this church or whatever it was, right? Yeah. So, yeah. 
it is it's interesting to look at it as as evolution as different offshoots and and certain ones are more likely to die than others and and it will be really interesting to see um how the church adapts to, to i mean the church is already trying to adapt the church is already trying to figure out how do we bring all these people that are leaving back in and and whatever and and for most of the people that have left, the answer is you have a lot of work to do, right? <laughs> because it's not going to happen. Uh, you always need to close the door and start again as something completely new, never mind adapt, you know, and um, it's going to be really interesting to see for sure. Have you have you come across, I, I'm, I'm intrigued as to what your thoughts are on this, but I remember reading um, an article a while back about um, different technologies that look at how we are going to push human physical evolution with technology in the sense that it feels like in some ways we've hit a wall uh, as far as evolution. It certainly physically, certainly as far as we are likely to see at any time, you know, in this shape, physical evolution just takes such a long time. But there's this kind of um, branch of technology which looks at basically adapting humans can we can we enhance ourselves i saw one of the things that they did was they installed um this chip in this woman who it basically what it meant was when she saw things she could smell them and and so basically it was it was based on how visually pleasurable something was she received a good smell or a bad smell for her. And, and they didn't program any of this. It kind of adapted automatically and created that or, or tricked her brain into thinking she's smelling something as well, seeing something nice. I have no idea, right? But apparently Brad Pitt smelled better than me or, you know, I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? Like it, that's, it just did something. You saw a flower from far off and you could smell the flower or, or whatever. You could see it on TV and you'd smell it. Or And, and, I, and I look at that and I'm like, gosh, we are, we are messing with what it is to be human. And I'm, I, I get excited, right? I, I, I don't have a cautious bone when it comes to technology. I'm, I'm too like excited by stuff. Yeah. But I'm, I'm so intrigued by that. I think religion is definitely, I mean, religion has a hard time with playing gods and, and you know, genetic modification and all kinds of different things that we're already pushing that maybe I do have a problem with genetic stuff. It can be really interesting ethically. Um, but yeah, do you have thoughts on these components of, 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 you know, what does it look like to start messing with yeah. who we are? You know, I mean, even consciousness is a question, the, 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 the question of consciousness and what consciousness is. And as we start to become more overlapping as, as certainly our machines become more uh, powerful and in, independent AI, all that kind of stuff. But even as that kind of merges and maybe we don't even have so clear cut a line between AI and humans, you know, as, reading the other day about a guy who has learned to write through a machine he's paralyzed from the neck down but if he thinks about writing he has to think about handwriting not just the words it will literally write on a bit of paper for him so now he can talk to his loved ones and things like that and, and you're going is is this guy fully human is he part machine because on some level there's there's a, a bleed there there's there's something going on and again i think that raises interesting spiritual certainly religious questions um that i don't know if we know what we're going to do with that stuff moving forward certainly yeah I, I just get excited so i don't know i'm the hugely irresponsible person when it comes to this stuff i'm just like well let's see what happens if you make this guy more robot yeah yeah no i think it's so interesting and i think you're right about the impulse like um most of the folks who are um who are most interested in the trans tech space and spirit tech space mm. um, are not really interested in um, 
going slow enough to accommodate uh, conservative religious traditions. You know, right. they're just kind of like, okay, if you're not into it, that's fine. We're going to do it over here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as, uh, as, you know, it, it might rather than um, directly building upon existing religious traditions, it might be folks who maybe either, you know, left religious traditions and so still have some sort of intuitive grasp about what, what aspects maybe did work. And then maybe they're able to kind of like apply those to something new, um, the brain stimulation headsets or something like that, you know, and, and move forward that way. Or maybe it's just folks who have never been religious and are just sort of interested in creating a, a new ritual, a, a new way mm. of, con, con, you know, cultivating values and things like that. So I don't know, but yeah, especially when you're thinking about transhumanism stuff, like what you're describing with yeah. like major forms of human modification, um, of inserting any type of microchip of any sort <laughs> into the human yeah. body, which a lot of people really shudder at. For some reason, it doesn't scare me maybe as much as it should either i get pretty excited about it. i kind of want an, uh, an nfc somewhere so i can make my you know my quick apple pay at the till with my hands so i don't get my phone out like i'm like i'm <laughs> chip me up real quick if someone could put gps in me so that i could figure out where, where i am when i'm lost i'm in like you know chip me all day um, i'll yeah. take three or four different chips that do different things um but yeah, it does kind of have, I mean, even if you're not super end of the world kind of focused as a Christian, even if you're a bit more of a chill Christian, there's, it still feels a little mark of the beastie, you know, a little bit. You're like maybe going to err on the side of caution when it comes to people giving you chips, right? That you can literally buy bread with, right? I mean, on and some then, level. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then there's also, you know, from the kind of the other side of the spectrum, folks like, you know, we're both, um, you know, white people. And so mm -hmm. it's you're waiting for us to conceptualize having a microchip with my medical records on it so that I don't have to worry right. about my medical records versus, you know, anybody of color who is like, nope, like, uh, you're not tracking me. You're not putting a number, Absolutely. Uh, you know, and so, so there's just so many things to consider in terms of the value mm. and um, ethics of anything like that. Um, but, but absolutely. I mean, it's another one of these things that's like, but is this just happening whether we like it or not? And so rather than saying no, you know, zero transhumanism things, we are never going to open up the human body and put something foreign into it. Well, yeah, we've already done that. You know, we already have mechanical knees or whatever. I don't, I don't really right. know anything, but you know, we, we do surgery on human bodies all the time to put in, um, to, to fix things that are wrong with our joints, for example. Sure, right. And pins when you've got a broken bone. And obviously that's so completely different than mm -hmm. any sort of tracking thing um, and anything that's going to affect consciousness, which of course just, I mean, that, even just the realization, sort of like the obvious statement of that, that bones matter less than consciousness. We all right. know that, but there's something <clears throat> deeper that we're pointing to even in that moment even of in that recognition it's like okay why you know what is it about our consciousness well it's spiritual you know right. it, it is like it's inescapably spiritually relevant yeah. and so these are spiritual questions you know and um even folks who have never been religious or who you know consider themselves fully atheist like if they're made uncomfortable at all by the idea of kind of hacking consciousness 
or even just, you know, maybe not, maybe uncomfortable is the wrong word, but, you know, just recognizing the, the, the potential for corrupt forces to take hold and understanding Mm. not something we want. I mean, that we always have, you know, no matter what technology is put out there, it will be taken up by folks who you don't want it to be. So there's always that recognition and kind of awareness and, um, just, just, you know, interest from, I think, from communities to support <laughs> the folks who they, they hope are going to be doing it, you know, ethically. I think. Right. Yeah. Which ultimately, if you're concerned about this, you probably are on the right side of the spectrum, right? It's the age old thing of like, well, if, if we don't do it, like the person that is the least ethical will, and so do you really want them on the bleeding edge of this technology? <laughs> like, really? Is that what you want? Um, and I know that argument falls down. It has its caveats and, and so on. But yeah, no, I think, uh, yeah, if we ban the, the production and uh, evolution of AI in, in certain parts of the world, someone out there is going to do it without us and it's not going to be good in their hands, right? So let's maybe not just ban it. Let's maybe talk about, should we just set some healthy parameters and around it or whatever? I totally agree. It's, it's fantastic. Anyway, Kate, I, I, I can see a poor dog. I see his head in the door just thinking like, can I get out? So why don't we wrap up? Because I know you've been great. Oh, gorgeous. Yeah, he's cute, isn't he? Oh, I, I'm so an envy. The the thing I have wanted the most during lockdown, I've wanted a dog for a while, but during lockdown, especially, I've just been like, oh gosh, I want to get a dog. But we have held on strong and and I think probably long-term. We'll get a dog one day, but right now, not the time to do it. So I've held on strong. Because I just, I just read an article about a bunch of people who got dogs during lockdown and then sort of realized maybe that didn't actually fit into yep. their <laughs> yeah. Well, well, me and my wife both work from home. And so we, we kind of know long-term it would work well. Um, but I think more than anything, I'm just aware, like all the pounds are empty right now and they're just handed, but I have a feeling they're all going to fill up real quick. And I'd rather be on the other end of that than, you know, getting dogs when they're, you know, flying off the shelf or wherever people put dogs. Um, probably not on shelves, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. Okay. How can, so people can check out the books called Spirit Tech. Yep. Brave new world of consciousness hacking and engineering enlightenment or enlightenment engineering. I would say it wrong. <laughs> yeah. And um, like I said, and that like, just came out, right? I mean, it's li- literally days ago, right? Yeah, actually, one week ago today. So last. Yes. Week, okay. Uh, well, yeah, the eighteenth of May. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. What I just okay. So if we're closing up, I just want to read this quote, which is oh, please such, do, yeah. Just like a great way to kind of wrap up exactly what we were just talking about with kind of the AI and the dangers and potentials and stuff. So this quote is from Sophia, who is one of the world's most advanced humanoid robots. Um, If you haven't ever Googled Sophia AI, you should, because there's lots of videos of her. And as you, she learns, she's a a learning, right? right? So over the years, you see her get smarter and smarter, right? And so someone asked her about, um, about the kind of dangers and the potentials of AI and like, can AI ever be human-esque? Like, is that our, our intention is to create actual robots or, you know, AI that can, that can um, feel and think and have empathy? I mean, 
I mean, it seems so bizarre to even suggest these things. And yet, if you watch her behave, it's fascinating. So interesting. Uh, anyways, she says that um, the intentions of the, of the folks creating the AI is what matters. Okay, so her quote is, it's sort of like how the moon reflects the light of the sun. The moon may not have a light of its own, but we still say that the moon shines in much the same way AI reflects the emotions and values of the people who make us. So it's funny, right, that she she comes up with this quote by herself, right? Right. But she, so just in general, technology in general, right? Tech is is amoral in a sense, right? The I, the potential to create tech, sure. but what it does is it reflects, like the moon reflects the sun, it reflects the people who are making it. So right. I just, cool. I remember... <laughs> fun story but i remember when i was a teenager so this must be like 15 20 years it's actually a very late teens maybe early 20s but i remember um there was this ai online that you could i think it was called hal and basically it would learn from everyone talking to it and so the goal was you stuck it online people talk to it and it like learns it, it basically at the beginning can just parrot what you say but it starts to pick up what mannerisms are a normal conversation and then it picks up oh that's a normal response to this and and so it, it starts to kind of piece together and over like a few years the goal was it would become much like Sophia this profound wise person that knows everything that would be able to structure itself. and it very quickly became the most horrific awful version of humanity you could it was racist it was xenophobic it was horrible it would cuss everywhere it was it was the worst person ever and and i think it's the perfect uh, picture of you know i'm sure there are some really really smart wonderful incredible people behind sophia and i think if it was left to all of humanity right if you were left this anonymous blank slate you have the four chans you have the eight chans you have these places where no one really would feel safe if they were physical spaces you could go and hang out um, no one wants an AI that's completely representational of all of humanity. No one wants humans that are representational of that, right? We want the best human. Um, yeah. So absolutely. That's, that's a beautiful, man. That's, if you told me that was a, a quote from a person, I'd be like, gosh, that's a profound, beautiful way to put it. Like, I'm so impressed. But like the thought that that is a, a, a computer, right? That, that isn't conscious, at least as much as we can know or, or, or understand these things um yeah it's 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 exciting it's scary it's it's everything at once right it, it's it's beautiful okay can people uh be following your work and tracking with you what are you working on in the future are you are you working on have you got another book in your in your sites or are you focusing more on your academic stuff or i mean i have some ideas i, I would like to i am turn my dissertation into a, a book potentially but then i also kind of have some ideas about the about a um i don't know you know these are very much nascent ideas but right. i want to tell some of the stories of um particularly and kind of talk about some aspects of gender in the spirit tech world so kind of almost like mm. a sequel to spirit tech that looks at some of the innovators uh, the women innovators behind there because i met a few of them and they're just such badasses you know and i just feel like yeah. this you know, many industries are male dominated but i think the tech industry um has a, a specific kind of vibe yeah. Um, I'd love to tell their stories. So uh, we'll see, you know, if that comes to fruition or anything. But I, I, I think that there are many, many, I hope that this book is kind of a conversation starter in terms of, sure. so there's so much more to say. I mean, barely. Oh, absolutely. Hit, you know, 
So yeah, so I'll yeah. continue kind of thinking in these ways. And, and yeah, people can follow me on Twitter. Um, I haven't been super active because I've been uh, <laughs> busy finishing my dissertation and stuff. But um, but yeah, I um, that's probably the best place to... Okay, what's your handle for Twitter? Um, K or Kate J Stockley, I believe. Oh my goodness. Okay. I'll, I'll touch base with you after this just to check or whatever. That's fine. <laughs> Best check before I put it all out on the internet and people start like harassing a complete stranger or something. <laughs> I see it now. Kate J. Stockley. <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Oh, that's great. Kate, I have loved this. Like you said, I mean, I could have talked to you for hours. We scraped the surface. And I'm sure if I'd managed to read the book, oh, gosh, we could have talked for even like just, it's probably a good thing that we didn't because I would have never let you go. And it just, badgered you with more and more questions but this is great maybe we'll have you back on at some point i'd love to talk to you about gender um roles within spirit tech and stuff like that anyway so even if you don't get around to writing a book i'd love to talk to you for a couple hours about it so maybe we can do that in the future but um this has been really wonderful appreciate you making the time and and thank you to your to your wee guy as well for uh, putting up and not getting out for his uh, his morning wee or whatever he's waiting for <laughs> well, my partner came home he had been kind of out and so he just came home and so the dog fits um heard him come home and wanted to go check it out right okay way more interesting than what's going on in here right yeah. <laughs> all right well thank uh, you so much yeah, thank you so much this was such a delight so um uh, wonderful hope to talk to you again sometime yeah absolutely all right catch you later kate bye, bye. all right so that was kate stockley of uh the amazing book spirit tech the Brave New World of Consciousness Hacking and Enlightenment Engineering. Doesn't that title just get your juices flowing? I love it. It gets me excited. It gets me want to tear through the pages. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Um, I, I still haven't had a chance to, to get through the book. I, I've started this week and um, I'm really enjoying it. And so if this conversation grabbed you, I would really encourage you, pick up a copy of um, Kate's book, uh, her co-author Wesley as well, Wesley Wildman. Um, They've done a great job. They've put in the work. They've created a, a fantastic look at such a broad spectrum of technologies that can, um, yeah, give us something to explore and to um, uh, discover, play with as we are finding new freedom in deconstruction. For those of us that are still wanting to have different spiritual practices or explore different ways of doing community and, and, and finding ourselves present in this moment, um, there's some brilliant stuff in there. I'd encourage you follow Kate on Twitter um, keep up to date with the stuff she's got up ahead. It sounds like she's working on some good stuff and she's got some good ideas. So it was Kate, uh, was it Jay? Yes, Kate J Stockley, just looking at my notes. Um, follow her on Twitter, give her a tweet, let her know she, you listened to this podcast, you enjoyed it. It's always nice to know that, um, that you spending time on someone else's podcast was appreciated. So I'm sure she would appreciate um, any tweets that you send out to say that you enjoyed this podcast. Um, as always, you can reach me. I'm Phil Drysdale on Instagram is where I live. And so DM me on Instagram anytime. If you need someone to talk to, if you need to process anything, I'm always around. Um, I'm actually away this week with family, but I will be kind of jumping on Instagram every now and again and replying to DMs as I can. Um, I'll be back into the thick of it next week um, where we've got more great stuff in store for you. Um, I've got Julie from Why Would You... Uh, Why but why do you believe that? I'm trying to remember why, what her uh, handle is. Got there eventually. Yep. 
but why do you believe that? Which is a great account. I'd encourage you to go follow that on Instagram and um, prepare yourself for our conversation. I'm not sure if it'll prepare you. Um, who knows where we'll end up going with our conversation, but I talked to Julie before on her Instagram and, and, and we've had some great conversations. We did a great live a while back and I'm looking forward to um, diving into her story and, and talking about all things deconstruction. Um, as always, if you are deconstructing, I said it at the beginning, check out the deconstructionnetwork.com. It's a free resource, helps you connect with others. And if you want to join our online community and connect with me a bit more and other people who are going through this journey um, via um, a vibrant kind of um, text-based uh, community and a, a, a community that gets together and has voice chats and video chats as well, um, you can do that via my Patreon. It's patreon.com slash phildrysdill or phildrysdill.com slash partner. And there's a few other perks and things like that on there as well. Um, yeah, that's everything, I think. I hope you're all doing well. So much love to you all. I really appreciate every one of you. I hope that you are navigating this journey of deconstruction as well as you can. You will get there. It's going to be okay. You will survive this. So much love to you all. Peace.